Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Calling in from the west coast of North America is my old bowling partner, Jimmy Fennessy. That's actually Ayo. a lie. I don't think we've ever actually bowled <laughs> together, but we'll, we'll go ahead and go with that. Future plans. Yeah, next time we get together, we will do some bowling. But today we are talking to uh, Bill Black and Mark Reyes, who are editors for Contingent Magazine. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit about themselves, their careers, and then we're going to find out what Contingent Magazine is and what it has to offer to the historical community. Gentlemen, could you uh, both take a moment to introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, my name is Bill Black. I uh finished a PhD in history at Rice University just last year, and I'm now uh, an instructor at Western Kentucky University, so I'm a, a contingent faculty year-to-year uh, -year deal. I'm a historian of uh, 19th century American culture and religion. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And uh, my name is Mark Reyes. I'm a, a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut. Uh, I study foreign relations history, particularly between the U.S. and India. I look at the Cold War. I look at history of technology. And uh, I'm actually talking to you from uh, Delhi. Uh, I live in India. I've lived here since uh, since December. Uh, but I'm doing research for my, my dissertation. Uh, and yeah, that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this means that you know whenever we have editorial meetings for Contingent Magazine, it uh, usually requires at least three time zones. Since I'm in Central Time Zone, our co-editor Aaron Bartram is in is in uh, Eastern Time Zone, and I don't know. Of course, India is a weird sort of. It's like 30 minutes off of. Yeah, like it's most time yeah. zones, right? It's uh, it's nine and a half hours ahead uh, from the East Coast. And it's it's the entire country is just one time zone. Oh. Uh, yeah. So it, and and we it's funny when I was actually just, I was going through some old emails the other day, and I think Bill, Aaron, and I we did our first like we we've, we've done like I've never actually met Bill in person, and I haven't met I haven't seen Aaron in person for probably like four years. So we do we've done all of this stuff via I mean Skype should really sponsor us or <laughs> like we do all this stuff through like google docs and skype uh but you know at one point i was living in kansas city missouri my that's my hometown and we were doing you know a lot of stuff you know on skype or through google docs so it was only like you know a one time zone difference and then since december actually even before we launched in january uh we've been we've been doing stuff where you know i either i i usually prefer to stay up late than than get up early but every once in a while we we have to have like a board meeting where it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting up at 4:30 in the morning, and I feel usually really productive that day until I until I crash. So, uh, but yeah. we, we make it work. You know, uh, as far as the actual magazine itself, you know, I, I suppose the way that Mark and I got into contact with each other was I reached out to Aaron Bartram, um, and we had met at a conference before, and I, I think. Part, partly because of uh, uh, a sort of viral blog post she had written about sort of coming to 
the conclusion that it was time for her to, to stop uh, looking for employment on the tenure track, that she was pretty much done with that, you know, uh, part of the job market. And I reached out to her about creating a, an online magazine where people who are historians but aren't, you know, uh, tenure track professors. So often, you know, they're adjuncts, they're, they're people like me who are on a year-to-year -year contract basis, um, you know, people who work at community colleges or even, you know, grad students or even, you know, people who are underemployed, like, you know, whether they're museum workers, park rangers, librarians, you know, a large number of folks out there who love history and perhaps still get to do work involved with history, but there isn't really uh, an economic incentive for them to do their, you know, research that they might have done their dissertation on. And so there's, you know, hundreds of dissertations that are basically just locked away, you know, on ProQuest or in someone's hard drive, and they don't really have a reason to do anything with it. And, and we thought, what if we created a place where, you know, they can at least take some nugget from, from their research or something that interests them, some story about the past, and, you know, be able to publish it for a, a public audience uh, and get paid for it. Um, and you know, I talked about this idea with Erin, and she talked about it with Mark, and, of course, they had the connection through University of Connecticut. And, yeah, yeah. we've been working on this, I guess, almost a year now because we were kind of slowly talking about it last summer. Um, in January 2019, we kind of announced that we were creating it, and then we went live in March and been putting out some stuff since then. It's such a good idea because um, I think, you know, when we had first met, we had discussed this a little bit, but um, there really isn't that avenue for adjuncts. And adjunct, being an adjunct is kind of the reality for uh, an academic or a historian nowadays if, you, if you're looking at teaching as potentially a career. Um, and sometimes, you know, you're, you're teaching for so many different universities as basically a contract worker that finding the time to to actually do the research and then going through the formal process of trying to submit to one of the bigger academic journals or to to a publisher, I mean, it just seems daunting to go through that whole that whole process and potentially just be denied. And you, you just offer a really great a really great forum for people who don't necessarily have those opportunities to be able to get their research out and to really inspire them to keep doing research. Um, and the stories, I mean, you know, it, it's everything from some traditional type history to one of my favorites was in um, March called The Circus Hitler Said He Loved. It's just oh, yeah. an absolutely amazing story. I loved it. No, I'm, 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 you know, thank you for, for saying that. Actually, that was one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you guys because you know, we, we feel like we've, we've published uh, a lot of grad students so far and, you know, freelance writers who have a background in history. But we, we really, as we've looked at what we've, you know, what pitches or what articles we've, you know, approved or, or plan to approve, you know, we, we looked and we wanted more pitches from adjunct instructors, from people who, you know, who are working as uh contingent faculty that, you know, like Bill said, like they have this great story. They have this either, you know, they're uh, someone they profiled or a trip to the archive or a document that they found that, that, you know, it's not, it's not enough, you know, it won't, it's not long enough for a journal article, but it, it could be something much more immediate. 
and I would say every month we usually have some contributor of ours uh, either tell us in an email or when they tweet out their article say like I didn't know what to do with this piece until I heard about Contingent Magazine and yeah. you know it, it happens enough that we just think like you know I, I'm pretty sure every historian we know has you know that like Bill said that one nugget or that one thing that they they could just break off and share right now and so it's 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 great to hear that and then at the same time know that we you know if you're an adjunct instructor if you're adjunct faculty and and you've got piece of your dissertation or piece of your thesis or story you want to talk about and you know we're we have different categories you know we it's not just the shorts it's not just long features if you if you if you've been to a historical site if you've been to an archive like we want we want those field trips uh, we want, you know, we, we have different calls for, for pitches going on right now. We, um, there's lots of different avenues. And we're also kind of flexible on, you know, if you wanted to send in a poem or you wanted to make a video. Like we're, um, yeah. you know, one of our, you know, we have three guiding principles that history is for everyone. The historian should be paid for their work and every way of doing history is worthwhile. And uh, it's it's nice to see our, you know, uh, those those principles seem to be. They matter to us, and it seems to matter to our contributors. Wait, and it's not just that people who are, you know, having to teach four or five classes a semester, um, it, you know, at a community college or just on a year-to-year -year thing, or, or having to, you know, teach two classes each at three different colleges and, and be commuting 100 miles every day. It's not the... It's not only that they don't necessarily have time to work on, you know, an article. It's that why would they work on an article? You know, the, yeah. the work that they're doing does not reward often getting anything published in a peer-reviewed journal. So it's understandable why it's, oh, you know, it's not like you're going to get promoted or anything like that. Um, and, you know, you're not paid for it. And the reason you're not paid for getting an article published in a journal is because it's supposed to count towards promotion. Um, and if you're not in the position, then, you know, you know, people just don't have an incentive to work on it, and yet often they have that thing kind of nagging at them. Oh, you know, there's something I could do with that, and perhaps you know you're 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 in a position where you don't necessarily want to you know try and pitch it to like the Atlantic or Vox or something like that. We kind of like to be we're more of a family business. Uh, you know, we work with people. You know, the writers we work with, we know that they're used to writing you know, a seminar paper. We know they're used to writing a dissertation chapter, and we're used to working with you and making it into a more public piece, which, you know, perhaps an editor at a different kind of magazine just perhaps wouldn't be interested or, or even able to, you know, take up that kind of uh, editorial challenge. How do you um, vet the pieces that are coming in do you do some sort of a it sounds like you probably don't really do like a formal peer review like a lot of the established academic journals do but do you have a way that you are kind of deciding if you've got multiple pieces coming in how do you decide which one to pursue or do you just pursue all of them or what, what is what is your 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 basically what is your decision making process well it sounds like there's kind of two i mean one is you know no, we don't. This isn't a peer-reviewed journal, so we don't go through and track down you know, every quote. Um, uh, you know, we might do some basic fact-checking, but you know, as yeah. far as that, that's more. We, we kind of go by more the industrial standard of, you know, the, the Atlantic or 
or uh, the baffler or something like that. As far as what pieces to pick, you know, uh, often it's just sort of more what seems like a good fit uh, for what we're trying to do. Often we can sort of tell, has this person read things that we've done in contingent? And usually if, if they have, then they have a pretty good idea of what we're looking for and the pitch is a good fit. I don't know, what, what would you say, Mark? Yeah, I would say that, uh, so we are, are, the site went live with content in, in March and we had a, a pitch window open from January to, to mid-February. So we, we received over 40, maybe about 50 pitches and some of them we knew we wanted for the first issue or the first two issues. And then others, we kind of said like, this is good, but we just, we need to make sure we raised enough money to keep going. So people were flexible about hey, like, we were able to tell possible contributors like, hey, you know, we, we like this, we understand, but we can't publish it right now. We understand if you want to submit it somewhere else, but you know, we, we, we're going to try to find the funds for this at, at another point. So we, in some sense, we've been, we just received so many pitches. We just got so many great ideas that we've been able to really use what we already had. And then uh, we've opened up for some, like next month we have this round table uh, about the 25th anniversary of Forrest Gump. And so we had, you know, a very, uh, our, I think our pitch window started at the beginning of June and it goes to, I think about uh, today or tomorrow. And, you know, we've, yeah, we've already gotten, you know, two dozen pitches and, uh, but we, we, you know, people have been pretty good about, you know, telling, we've been able to tell contributors like, oh, we really like this, but we just can't publish it just yet. But they, they still want to publish with us. So we stuff, you know, there's articles we know we can get to eventually. You know, the Forrest Gump uh, pitches, that's a, a good example of how we vet because it, we, we, we decided to do a kind of a weird thing basically a way of, of maximizing our, our donor dollars of, you know, okay, Forrest Gump is turning 25 years old. This is kind of a big movie in that for a lot of folks, especially in our generation, this is where we kind of learned a lot of American history after World War II, often the stuff we didn't get to in class. It's you know, where we learned about Vietnam and Watergate and whatnot. And so we said, okay, we're going to pay 60 bucks for uh, just a mini essay, 250, 300 words. So, so pitch us a mini essay like that, but your pitch can only be one sentence. And so basically, you can tell by someone's ability to write a compelling pitch in one sentence, like, okay, if, if they're able to do that, then they're probably going to be able to write a 250-word mini essay that packs a punch. That's often, that is kind of a hard thing for someone yeah. with academic training to do. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, we, we, <laughs> Getting we, an we, academic we, to go to one sentence, that's got to right. be very difficult to do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's asking people to use a different kind of skill set and flex their muscles in ways they're not used to. Uh, you know, we regularly are having to whittle down drafts to what we had originally contracted for. Uh, oh, I know you said you only needed 3,000 words, but here's 5,000. Well, okay, well, <laughs> we don't want 5,000 words. Um, but so, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's. Yeah. I think I think that's I think that's good to hear. I mean, the the even like the peer review and all of that, because because one of the other obstacles that I think is in the minds of a lot of adjunct instructors and all that, even besides you know the the time and the energy and all of that, is just the 
the process of going through the peer review, knowing that the peer review is going to take six to 12 months for people to get back to you. And then there's always the cliched reviewer number two that's going to come after you for <laughs> things that you didn't even intend to, to do. <laughs> the, the reviewers are going to get mad that you didn't write the paper that they wanted you to write. And so there's right. kind of a psychological block there too, I think, that a lot of people feel where it's like, I, do I want to go through all of that just to, right. because this is a, you know, it's something I'm not going to get paid for. I mean, with your, with yours, it's, you, your magazine is fairly unique because you actually are paying people and that's, that's worth emphasizing on its own. But for the average academic journal, you're not going to get paid for it. Uh, and putting aside all of the instant, the lack of institutional support and all of that, that an adjunct instructor is going to face, I think there just is the psychological just drain that comes with the, the even thinking about going through that process. And so I think it's interesting to hear that you guys aren't doing that. You just, you just love a vetting process. Obviously, you're not going to publish trash. You're not going to publish something that's obviously wrong. And that's obviously there's some oversight yeah. there. But I think yeah. in some ways, I think the lack of peer review can be beneficial. It can encourage people to contribute it can also probably encourage a kind of a freer exchange of ideas because if people aren't worried about you know having three reviewers tear everything to shreds so that you'll so that at the end of it you end up with something very anodyne and boring i think maybe that can make for more lively um submissions also and, yeah. and one thing i i would add is you know we we publish around three to four pieces a month so of those three to four pieces you know Bill, Aaron, and I, you know, are, are the main editor on one of those pieces. But, you know, when I'm, when I think I've gotten a piece to a certain point, you know, I can kick it up to Bill and say, hey, can you look this over? You know, there are times when it's, when someone is going to, you know, Bill or Aaron will look over proofreading or I'll look at footnotes. So we're all kind of bringing, you know, our, our eyes. So every piece really does get run through you know, three different pairs of eyes and we're all kind of looking at stuff in a, at a different angle. It might be on the content side. It might be on the style side. It might be on the on the grammatical side, but you know, there's everybody's looking at what's coming in. And I, I think that's just kind of the, the fun part of just seeing, like we've, we've seen these pitches since January and February. Like we, we just published uh, a feature about uh, the closing of, of Newberry college in um, uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts. And that was a piece that, you know, we remember seeing in, in February and it was kind of this germ of an idea about, you know, what is it like when, like we're used to seeing stories, more and more stories about, you know, maybe a center at a university closing or a, or a history major being eliminated at a, at a college. But what happens when an actual college just closes? What is that last semester like? And so to see yeah. some of these pieces go from, this germ of an idea to, you know, to a more sketched out pitch, to an outline, to, you know, a large draft, and then to see it kind of take shape as, you know, a, a full length feature. Like that's, you know, it's, it's something like I, 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 before this, you know, I, most of my editing was my own work or, you know, close friends. Uh, and now I, I really enjoy being able to see, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like stumbling on to like a secret movie or, or discovering a secret of seeing, you know, these kind of interesting stories that I had no idea about just, you know, come from, come from the middle of nowhere and just be something you're like, wow, I, I, I was, 
proud that we published this or I'm, you know, I was blown away that we, we had the honor to, to share the story with the world. Yeah, and that, that seems to come through because I, I was actually looking just earlier today at that article about the uh, the, the closing yeah. of the college and thought that was a fascinating read um, because, like you said, yeah, we hear about, you know, programs shutting down or something like that. But, yeah, the entire – the idea that a university could just cease to exist is more than just – you know, something going out of business, like what happens all the time, is is that a university is is more is you know it's like an idea suddenly going out of business yeah. rather than a business going out of business. It's very yeah. disorienting, and especially for the people going through it. I thought that was a really interesting article by um, Brendan O'Malley. Yeah. I think something pretty haunting was he, he talks about how one of his students laments that like she won't be able to take her kids to where she went to college. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's a sort of piece, it is a sort of piece that you couldn't really have in a peer-reviewed journal. It's more kind of, it, it kind of pieces together, it weaves together his, the history of the college. So he kind of does have some more traditional research, you know, woven together with his own autobiography, with, you know, him kind of interviewing former students. And also these photographs, these kind of, uh, kind of haunting photographs that he took. Yeah. Uh, after it had shut down, this almost sort of po uh, post-mortem of these, you know, empty classrooms and stuff waiting to be recycled. So it's a place, you know, I don't know what other, where else would publish something like that. And that's something we want to be the, the home for places. For, we want to be the home for pieces that wouldn't necessarily have a home otherwise. Yeah. And, and one thing both about Brendan's piece, but you know, our first piece was this photo essay by Carrie Lee Merritt about uh, swamps in the Civil War. And I think both of those pieces, you know, you have this, you have these very haunting photos of whether it's, you know, nature or an abandoned building. Uh, and these were, these were photos, you know, and, and not just those two pieces, but other pieces we published have been photographs by the author. Uh, and so we, we definitely encourage authors to send you know, to, to use their phone or use their camera to, to you know, we, we want visual content to accompany the piece, and, and it's really better if it comes from them. I, we want, you know, the, the article itself is giving, you know, a, a view of, of this story or this setting, uh, but we also want, we want these visual images to go with it, too. So it, it's, you know, we, we also want our, our contributors to be not just writers, but also photographers, if they can, if, to give to give the readers a, a, a sense of, you know, the, the things that they're, they're reading about. So it's, it's nice that we've had contributors that have said like, oh, you know, let me, let me take a photo of this cookbook or let me, let me share these family photos with you or, you yeah. know, let me, let me, here's, I'm writing about this person um, that I found in an archive and there only happens to be one photo of them. Like that's, it's nice that, you know, uh, it's not just text that, that people are engaging with that they're able to see images and and you know they they're not just sitting on a on a laptop somewhere they're we're putting them to good use well it's great because it not only it also adds like an immediacy and a human element to mm -hmm. to the research but also the story i mean history is about people it's about people's experiences you know we're not talking about um, the evolution of rocks. We're not talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> like, we're talking about people and, and how, how we've evolved as, as humans and as a society and being able to have that visual element. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's how people learn. I can't, I'm going to get the number wrong because I'm bad with 
numbers, but um, I think it was something something like when you're talking about trainings or or learning something new that people might forget 80% of what you've talked about or what they've read. Um, but the the staying power of an image of colors and of image is something that they take with them. So if there's a chart or if there's a picture that captures exactly what you've been talking about, that's going to actually make them retain that information even more. And it's going to make it make it more immediate and trigger this emotional response and something in the brain that actually makes them remember and makes them learn. So being able to incorporate images, I mean, it's something yeah. that a lot of historians don't necessarily think about when they're writing a journal article or even when they're writing a, a manuscript, um, because sometimes we just don't have those available images. Or like a, a comic strip, you know, probably one of the most famous things yeah. that we've put out is a, a comic strip by uh, Aaron Cole, a museum worker, uh, talking about how to structure an exhibit and thinking about all the different kinds of people who go to museum and why they're going there. And it's this really, you know, she, she uses the, 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 the comic strip to, you know, deal with the space of the museum exhibit in a way that I think maybe only comics could do. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who, you know, your your day job has to do with history, but, you know, perhaps you have some other hobby, uh, maybe you like to draw or, or write music or something else. And, it's, you know, we are totally open to you bringing yeah. that in as well. Yeah, I was thinking of um, when I was looking at those that made me think of other kind of gra history based graphic novels that have been coming out lately there was a um john lewis's march series yeah there's three volumes of that uh there's one uh that was published a few years ago is basically the story of the u.s constitution told in comic book form or graphic novel form whichever term you want to use but um <laughs> yeah i think it's really interesting that that there's been kind of this push towards finding new media to kind of share historical knowledge and I so I think the comic strip is is a great idea and I think it's fitting with kind of the direction that a lot of people are trying to go in as people try to find inventive new ways to spread historical knowledge to audiences that may not be receptive to cracking open a thousand page hardcover you know monograph right. like the rest of us did <laughs> when we were in grad school I know well, or yeah, even we... if it's about the theme itself oh sorry about um no. But I was just even thinking, if it's about the theme itself and not even, you know, a fully historical retelling, I mean, think about how how widespread and impactful Mouse has been over the last, God, I can't even remember when that was published as a graphic novel. Um, I think it must have been in the 90s. Or um, even, what was the other one, Persepolis? I think it was 80, I think. Yeah. 87, I think, was Mouse. So we're talking 30, 32 years since yeah. Mouse was published. And it's something that's been used in colleges and high schools and universities as a way of, of teaching about the Holocaust. And the hum I mean, we're talking about mice and cats, but we're teaching the human, the human impact of one, of one of the most devastating experiences in human history, at least modern human history. You know what I mean? It's just that the image and the story itself. Um, so it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where we continue to go with incorporating graphic novels into historical learning. But, um, I mean, Rob brings, brings up a fantastic point about where it has been going as well. Just as a what? correction, the uh, mouse was originally published serialized between 1980 and 1991. So we were all correct when we said the 80s <laughs> and the 90s. So. Yeah, let's, Yay just us. Give a, let's, right. let's give a, round, a roundabout decade. One of the, my, uh, one of 
the favorite things that I took away as an undergrad was uh, one of my mentors, who's still a close friend, said something in class one time that, um, you know, you can look up dates and you can look up the, the specific date that an event occurred. What I really want you to know are the larger themes, um, you know, so I don't necessarily need to know when the Civil Rights Act was passed, although I should. Um, but what I should know is what led to that Civil Rights Act and what was going on the, in the U.S. around that time and, and how that then impacted American society. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's it's even good to, you know, I, like in the classroom, I, I try and encourage people, you know, don't, don't be afraid of using Google or Wikipedia, just, to, you know, know how to use them, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to figuring out basic facts. Because um, the thing is, folks are going to use them anyway, so I, I would rather folks, you know, not be scared of using them in the classroom, uh, but rather learn how to use them right. Or, or even, you know, if we're scared of getting our hands dirty vis-a-vis uh, -vis YouTube, then we just leave YouTube to, you know, the, the sort of not very credible stuff that, that can that's out there that you you probably see in, in students uh, work cited pages where they uh, cite like oh there's like there's a there's a really popular YouTube series crash course I think yeah uh, crash course it's like there is well well done stuff on YouTube it's just you know you have to know how to find it where to find it and if you if you tell students you know you're not allowed at all uh, it's, it's almost like an abstinence-only approach to it. Then you know, then folks aren't going to learn where the good stuff is. And yeah, then you end up with all those videos, uh, all the uh, right-wing trolls that are that are telling you what history is. <laughs> oh sure, I mean, the, like the PragerU videos are, are really well produced and obviously have a lot of money uh, put into them. Uh, and yep. I've, I've seen some of those pop up. Uh, and yeah, it's not not anyway. I would yeah. I would say that we we suspected that Aaron Cole's comic would you know uh, people would you know respond to it very well and and that it would we'd get some good feedback but we were just really blown away by how immediately people really enjoyed it they said it was very different you know we that's I it happens quite often but especially in the the first couple of months we we heard from a lot of uh, high school teachers saying like oh I I really want to use this in my my classroom. It's it's going to be in my syllabus. I can't wait to teach this. This is, you know, uh, the right size of what I think my students. You know, I, I you know, this isn't a journal article. This is, but it's still like a professional piece of historical research. I think they can. I think they can get it. I don't think they're expecting something like this. Mm -hmm. But it, it made us think about you know you know you know please somebody who's would like to do a you know a, a graphic novel version of their dissertation or. Or a, you know has a spin-off for an illustrated you know chapter that they couldn't get to like it's it's you know we're 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 open to uh, to those kind of pitches where uh, you know we if if you can draw or you can you know ex express yourself and your work uh, in some other capacity like we're we're more than willing to to listen to what you have to have to say you know we've had teachers especially high school teachers uh, who have said that. The, the, it's gotten, you know, in the past couple of decades, it's gotten a lot better as far as ha having access to primary sources that they can mm -hmm. bring into the classroom, but often harder for them to find good secondary sources that they can bring into the classroom. They have these big old textbooks, uh, and, you know, 
which aren't, aren't even secondary sources, they, they, I guess they're tertiary. They have, you know, stuff from JSTOR that, you know, probably be harder for a high schooler to read. And then there's, you know, like, you know, op-eds published in like the Washington Post or stuff that is not as academically rigorous as what we do. You know, so there, there was kind of a middle ground that they were looking for, stuff that, you know, has been vetted by historians, but is also not written primarily for an academic audience. And there, you know, there wasn't much in that space, in large part because the places that have tried to fill that space often are, are depending solely on volunteer uh volunteering, you know, these kind of group blogs that are out there and doing good stuff. Uh, and, you know, you just you, you, you get what, what you pay for. You know, if you're depending on volunteer work, it's going to end up skewing towards folks who, you know, are, are tenure track or tenured and uh, stuff starts falling through the cracks. And to, to really treat it seriously as a magazine was something that we, we wanted to do. And I think that's helped us. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, I, we, don't, we don't need to, you know, log roll for every article that you guys have published so far. But I did, there was one that also kind of spoke to me a little bit, um, where the historian was studying a particular uh, Japanese American. And the kind of thrust of the article is, uh, what does it mean for a historian to fall in love? And uh, by Sonia Gomez, I believe it was. And oh, yeah. I thought that was a, a really interesting article because she's talking about what it's like to research a particular person and trace kind of the, the, the lifespan of a person. And the, you know, not, I, I don't think she was talking about, you know, literally falling in love, but, you know, just getting to know this person and becoming fairly intimately familiar, or at least as intimately familiar as you can through archival records and census data, stuff like that. But getting to know what it's like to live with a, a virtual person almost uh, for a good you know chunk of your life when you're doing all this research. And I, I just thought that was a really interesting mm -hmm. article. And I can definitely see that that would not be easily publishable in something like the AHR or something, because it's not... It's not making a historical argument. It's not building on primary sources. It's just talking about the experience of being a historian. And I think that tends to get lost in yeah. training training yeah. history majors and history grad students and all of that. We tend to focus on the finished product of what historians produce. We don't talk as much about the actual process of creating it and what what historians go through. Because as as we are putting ourselves in you know, other people's shoes in the past, that that's that's a weird psychology. And that can affect us historians. It can affect how we do our work. It can affect our final product. Uh, you know, some people always rail against the bias that historians bring to the table and all of that. But some of that bias is just because you are connecting with these people, you understand them in a way that they weren't understand before, understood before. And so it, it's just... It, the, the article brought up an interest, just kind of an interesting concept there about how do we interact with people in the past and how do we, how do we as historians, you know, diverge from that? How do we deal with it? How do we divorce ourselves from it? It's a very interesting concept. Rob, you also brought up an, another great point, connecting it back to how, you know, these articles aren't only for current historians, but future historians, like what... What yeah. resource does that provide and what guidance does that provide to the history student or the future historian, which, I mean, 
is exactly why we created this podcast in the first place. It's what we're doing here today. We're interviewing the two of you because you're very interesting people. You're doing great work. But this is also to help the students see where they can go with that work. And I mean, you had that article. Another great one was, um, I really like this article uh, because it's a good article, but also because of the banner, because I imagine that this is what Rob looked like as a child. The Student Digital History Roundup Part 1. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it came out like, was that like a month or two ago? But you've got yeah. that kid who was giving the thumbs up. And I'm like, oh, I bet that's what Rob looked like sitting in front of his like uh, his <laughs> Mac computer back when he was like 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit blonder back then. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted uh, Sonia's piece, Mr. K, because that's another example of, of someone who, who, you know, came out and said, like, I, I've had this, this, I've wanted to write something like this for five years. I just didn't know where to send this. I didn't know if a magazine would be interested. I, it wouldn't work in a, a history journal. And, you know, the, the, the article really gets into these, you know, different ideas about, you know, empathy of, of historical subjects and um, sort of the emotional labor or the emotional toll that, that being in an archive and it, it also just, you know, a lot of the you know, subjects I've profiled are prime ministers or policy makers, kind of, you know, government officials or elites. So it's, it's one thing to sort of try to, to get into, you know, their mindset. It's another thing to try to think about this person that is is not a famous person, is not a head of state, is just a you know a, a person who lived in Chicago in the 50s, who lived a you know a, a sad, lonely existence. Um, you know what does that mean to to sort of identify or try to to understand someone that you know an everyday person? And uh, I think Sonia's piece, and, and you know Sonia went to Chicago to look at. Women. She wasn't expecting to write about this this bachelor um, from you know 1950s Chicago, but there was something about this person that she found this emotional connection to, and and, and enough that she not just wrote about him, but you know she said at one point she kind of wrote a, a short story about this character, this person. She tried to fictionalize, uh, you know, try to continue the story of how she would. How, she, how you know she imagined the story would go, and so again, I, I think all historians or all scholars, to some degree, you know, think about these people as as uh, you know, kind of see them as as these larger figures in a in a bigger story, and uh, you know, without uh, you know, I, I'm glad she was you know that forthcoming that she was looking for an avenue to to. To put this, you know, to have this piece published, or, or that she was looking for, you know, an outlet for this story, and and I, it's, I want to say, it's just reassuring to keep hearing over and over that, you know, oh, I I wanted to publish this, I just didn't know where, and so to sort of echo what, what Bill was saying that, you know, we we want to be that the home for that. You know, I think uh, we often hear laments that there's this kind of div increasing divide between, you know, sort of professional experts and this, you know, the, the lay people, you know, oh, yeah, there's these people who have this expertise in history, but, you know, the average public isn't listening to them. And well, how are we supposed to bridge this divide? And I, I think one way of going about that is be more transparent about what, what doing history is. Um, in a way that, you know, can be scary to do because 
there's a sense in which you are admitting that like anyone can do it. Uh, you know that that there isn't something magical about historians that enables them to do to do it. Anyone can do it. I mean, you know, there's a certain expertise, a certain craft that they've developed over the years. Uh, and, and I think a lot of what we try to do with our pieces is you know, let people look under the hood, whether that's the emotional labor of doing history or whether it's more kind of nuts and bolts, how do you do an oral history, uh, e even stuff that's sort of geared at students, uh, you know, like, oh, what is the difference between an instructor and a professor? What's the difference between an assistant professor and an associate professor? And stuff that I did not know as an undergrad, you know, stuff that we often consciously or unconsciously want to keep opaque. We're trying to let people look at it. We're, you know, we try to be Mr. Rogers taking you to the crayon, fact, crayon factory and looking at how it's made. We're doing that with history instead of crayons. <laughs> yeah, I think that's awesome. So I think this is a, an, a, a, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see you guys doing this and I, I obviously we wish you the, the best of luck with that. Uh, are there any, uh, since we're coming up on the hour mark and I, I don't want to, you know, we have to cut this off at some point, I guess. <laughs> but um, uh, since we're coming up on the hour, are there any kind of last comments that you guys wanted to make about the about the magazine or about the what you're what you're trying to do with all of this that we haven't covered yet? Well, I'd say a couple things. One is that you know we are uh, taking pitches. Uh, we can't accept. You, you know, we only have a budget for so many a month. Um, but you know, we do still need pitches to come in, so we definitely encourage people to do that. And you can just email a pitch to pitches at contingentmag.org. And if, for more information, I mean, our website is contingentmagazine.org, and we have an about menu. And if you click on that, it's a little drop-down menu. It should, there's a thing where it tells you how to yeah. pitch us. I think the actual URL is just contingentmagazine.org slash pitch hyphen us uh, for info on how to write a pitch because often, you know, folks with history degrees don't even necessarily know how, how are you supposed to send a pitch because it's different from, you know, we don't want you to just send us the full, you know, uh, a fully written piece. Uh, and you know, if if you're interested in in supporting our work, you, you know, uh, you know, we we had a big kind of initial fundraiser at the beginning of the year that we've been subsiding on, uh, but we do need more folks to to kind of sign up and uh, become sustaining members, even if it's just giving us three, four, five bucks a month, so that we can keep this going and up. So if you go to contingentmagazine.org slash donate, you can see how to do that. And you, if you do that, you also get access to a few perks. We have a podcast that's a members-only podcast. Um, and there's other bonus content that's coming down the pike as well. Um, or if you just want to make a, a you know, a one-time donation, that's fine too. You can look, you can read how to do that on the donate page as well. But And, and also just tell people about us. That's, a, that's another big thing you can do to support us. Yeah, I'll put yeah. the um, I'll put the URL and all that in the uh, episode notes when this goes live. Nice. Yeah, I guess my my two things that I, I would just close with is you know we're on social media uh, and we we we're on Twitter. Let me make sure I get our exact or contingent underscore mag. Yeah. So we we tweet out 
new pieces once they're available and and we you know if people you know we, we'll get like retweets or or you know we tend to when when people become donors or when people like like any of our pieces we 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 tend to retweet that you know we there's a lot of engagement of, of our social media followers you know we we want this to be a you know a, a two-way street um so follow us on on social media we have a facebook page uh but we we tend to do a lot more on on twitter but my i guess my big thing is in and you know bill had talked about this uh so we don't have a paywall yeah, you can read as much you can go to contingent and read every article that we have on the website right now but at, at some point as you scroll down you might see you know a prompt screen saying like hey if you like what you're reading consider a donation and that's that's kind of the the big thing is you know we we're looking for monthly donors sustaining donors and and we're you know we're realistic you know we even small donations three four five dollars a month you know what you'd spend for you know a, a cup of coffee you know you know a, a grande starbucks coffee you know that <laughs> they, these add up i mean if if uh you know we have a, a good number of twitter followers you know if, if every one of them gave just a dollar a month we you know it doesn't cost that much to to put out a month's worth of to you know to, to pay the editors to pay our, all of our contributors to to pay our bills you know it's you, we we run a pretty tight ship and it's a, it's a good investment but it's also again we're we're one of the things that we were doing with this project was to model this uh this type of project to say that you know we will we will you will be compensated for your academic labor for your research for your work for your rewriting for your writing it's that you know that's that's historians need to be paid for their labor uh yeah. and you know we're very inclusive on what we want to publish you know of, of you know we want to publish graduate students we want to publish independent researchers we want to publish adjuncts and you know we we think that um you know the there are so many great ways to do history and there's so many there's we thought there was a, a bigger audience uh, for these stories, and and I, I think we have not been we have not been disappointed in in how how large that audience is. It's it's been reassuring to see uh, you know high school teachers, undergraduate students, um, you know people who who write and say like oh I'm a big history buff. I really you know I, I try to read everything I can about the Civil War. I really enjoyed this photo essay. So it's it's uh it's been reassuring to see that uh that if anything we we underestimated just how how big the audience was. Well that sounds really cool. Oftentimes when we end these we like to just do a little brief recommendation for cool things that we've seen recently that is history related. Um do you all feel like you've got something you'd like to talk about or we can just skip it if we don't? I have something. Okay. Sure. Then uh, yeah. yeah, Bill, go ahead and uh, what, what do you have to recommend to us today? I would like to recommend a podcast I just got into called You're Wrong About, and it's You're Wrong About, and then an ellipsis, You're Wrong About, et cetera, et cetera. And it's hosted by a guy named Michael Hobbs, who's a journalist for the Huffington Post, and Sarah Marshall, who's a freelance writer. And what they do is, is that each episode they talk about an event, an historical event, usually between 1980 and 
2005. So basically stuff that, you know, it could be the satanic panic of the, of the 80s, uh, the, the Duke uh, lacrosse, uh, you know, rape allegations, uh, stuff that was you know, the Elian Gonzalez uh, stuff in, in uh, 2000, 1999, stuff that you know, I, I grew up, I saw on the news, but I never really got a, a really good big picture look at what happened. And often what they focus is on, oh, this was the kind of the media narrative that people latched onto, but it actually was pretty inaccurate. And they go into and kind of de, you know, and it's helpful for if you're, if you're teaching American history, especially the second half, to, you know, to give you some perspective on, on stuff that maybe you were like too close to to really have a historical perspective on but often hasn't been written about much because it was so recent. And another good thing about it is that they will often, you know, lean on scholarly work that has been done, and they'll, like, be sure to name drop, you know, uh, who, what political scientist or, or historian or, or whatever it is that, that they're getting the information from. So I think they, you know, even though they're not professional historians, I think they do a pretty good job modeling how to use other people's research. And, and they're really funny as well. That's really cool. It yeah. sounds kind of like a um, there's the Professor Buzzkill podcast, which kind of does that, but it, they intentionally don't do recent events uh, because they, you know, it's just too recent for some historians. So it sounds like they're kind of picking up on where Professor yeah. Buzzkill kind of leaves off, and that's awesome. I guess my recommendation, and I, I've, I've written about this before, and I, I kind of tell anybody uh, I meet about it, uh, but so. Being in India, I have uh, we have Netflix India, which is very similar to you know Netflix US. Uh, although uh, it's kind of crazy, the like all the Disney movies are still on here, like even fairly recent animated movies, which is weird because I, I know like in the US, they're they're Disney's like pulling everything they have on Netflix off for their own app, so it's kind of weird what shows up on here. Uh, but uh, one of the things that my my wife uh, Libby and I enjoy is we watch different food documentaries and so there's one there's an Indian food documentary series called uh, it's in English it's called King's Kitchens and their stories it's a uh, Raja Razo Arana Kayan and uh, it's 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 a documentary series that looks at not just like the history of food but like the history of the it, like all the episodes are based around a different Indian state or city so they'll do an episode about Kerala. So you'll learn about South India and you'll learn about, um, you know, different, you know, these pancakes they have there that are made out of coconut and this, this vegetable stew that Keralites eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's kind of like the Kerala version of biscuits and gravy. Like you could just eat it for every meal. Um, but you know, the, it's, it's well shot. It's really informative. It has English subtitles. The food always looks amazing. But I, I just, like, there are historians throughout the whole episode. Like, they'll go to, they'll do, uh, you know, an episode about Maharashtra, and they'll have, you know, this historian of India or this historian, like a, a food historian, talk about, um, you know, from the University of Mumbai. And so it's, it's a great way to, you know, use food as a way to understand Indian history uh, and learn about, you know, sort of when did, when did Indian you know, th there's that question of like, when did India 
start to see itself as as one country and not just you know a series of villages or or a province. And so it's it's a great way to sort of understand 20th century Indian history, but then also you know to see this amazing food, and uh, you know it's 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 well shot and uh, well edited, and it, it, the hour flies by, and it's uh, and I, I I just started watching it after I I'd come back from one of the places they profiled, so it was kind of it, it made me feel real, you know I, I felt good that I had, I had gotten you know the, all the food they profiled I'd actually eaten, so I felt like I had, I had uh, I, I, you know, I had certainly uh, everything was familiar, and I, I felt like I'd. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, I felt like I, I'd lived up to the episode, so if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. That's cool. What, what was the title of that again? Uh, it's Kings Kitchens and Their Stories. Uh, Raja Rizzo Arana uh, Kayan. But yeah, King's Kitchens and Their Stories. And I think you can, it might, I, I don't know if it's available on Netflix US, but you can find whole episodes or, or long clips on YouTube. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look for that. And that sounds really cool. So if you, yeah, if you like food documentaries, but if you're also interested in Indian food, it's a good way to kind of see what's what's the difference between North Indian cuisine or um, South Indian cuisine or, or just kind of even down to, you know, very specific cities. Um how their how their uh, food differs from sort of the larger state that they're in. Cool. My wife is into the cooking shows, so maybe I'll be able to sneak this one in since it's got a historian or history interest and the cooking interest. <laughs> we, uh, we we just started watching the new John Favreau show, The Chef Show, on Netflix, mm. and they you know they did an episode in Austin, Texas, at this barbecue place, and it's you know I before we moved here. My wife Libby used to work at a Omaha Steaks, so we we ate steak, we ate meat quite a bit, uh, or or chicken, or you know beef, or steak, or or fish. And you know, moving here, you know, we were basically vegetarians, uh, and I I don't really miss beef or or pork. Uh, you know, we have chicken every once in a while. But watching this show, the 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 new uh, chef show, is the only real time I've ever actually missed. Uh, beef here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jimmy. Uh, I know that you actually need to duck out in a few minutes, but do you have anything you want to share before you go? I do. So, um, a book by a friend of a friend. It is called Urethane Revolution: The Birth of Skate, San Diego, 1975. So it's basically um, about the transformation that occurred in skateboarding in the 1970s. Um, with the introduction of urethane wheels. So before that, you have clay wheels, you have metal wheels. Um, you have people, you know, nailing roller skate uh, bottoms to two-by-fours and then the development of other skateboards that don't even, uh, you know, look like what we have today. Um, in the 1970s, I mean, skateboarding was – it wasn't really going anywhere, and then urethane came around um, as, as a um, – oh, my God. The urethane wheels came around um, and just like revolutionized skateboarding. And to give you a sense of what this this book is about, um, you know, it's not it's a who's who, it's what happened. But I think uh, the back cover perfectly sums this up. And I don't know who wouldn't want to read this. Um, so one crazy year on the California coast in 1975, a hippie skunk works bred in garages and shacks launched the modern skater movement. Strap in for a wild ride replete with two car chases, two plane crashes, 
a massive truck bomb, Colombian narcos, the mafia, senior White House staff, a gypsy fortune teller, three straight-up miracles, Jacques Cousteau, big piles of cocaine, and naked hippie chicks. <laughs> Author John O'Malley was in the thick of it all, and he retraces the trip that starts with a bang and races to a melt-in-your-mouth ending. I mean, why wouldn't you read that? Wow. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it, it, you know, even if the book is boring, the fact that that is written on the back cover should get, make anybody want to read it. <laughs> so, um, but really, it, I mean, you know that I have a special place in my heart for subculture, subculture history, skateboarding, music, um, all of the, uh, you know, just just youth culture in general. And um, this book just kind of fits perfectly into that and having Having been a skateboarder for 30 plus years, um, geez, yeah, uh, that it like kind of fits right into personal history as well. So. Yeah, hey, you're, you're, you're dating yourself there, but hey, that's cool, whatever. I am, yeah, right. as a 25 year old. Right, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Very All natural, right. yeah. <laughs> Well, I wanted to actually talk about a, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, this article in the Washington Post. Um, this thing that came out like two or three days ago about the Naomi Wolf and the Cokie Roberts incidents that have happened recently, um, where Naomi Wolf uh, wrote a book talking about, uh, and the central argument is the persecution of homosexuals in Victorian England. And it talked about how uh, homosexuals were sometimes, you know, went through trials and were executed uh, for homosexuality and homosexual behavior and lifestyle and all of that. And um, it turns out that the records that she was using to base that on were British legal records, but the problem is they were, the outcome of those court cases always said death recorded, and so she thought that meant they were executed. And so she wrote a book talking about how these men were executed for uh, by the state, you know, capital um, um, capital punishment for violating homosexuality, sodomy laws, that kind of thing. Um, and then she went on a tour for to you know to build a, a publicity tour for the book, and she went on a radio show. And the host said, "Well, wait a minute, you're basing all of this on this this legal jargon called death recorded. Well, death recorded doesn't actually mean the person was executed." All death recorded means is that the judge, in order to say that he was enforcing the law, he said death recorded, and then usually the person was let go. They weren't they weren't actually executed, and so she was the, the author was challenged on the air about this, and and he's like, this is a this is an old British term. It's it's something that you know it's not well known, but it was something that happened in Victorian England where the judge could say that I'm enforcing the law by by condemning this person to death, but I didn't actually have to kill the guy. And so now the the the, the book that this is all based on is is now in jeopardy, and Naomi Wolf has kind of been discredited as a as a you know an amateur historian. She's a journalist. She's not a a, a um, trained historian. And then on the um, and then there was a second incident recently where Koki Roberts, who has written, who's a journalist, who has written books on women's history, uh, women's political history, um, she went on NPR to give a radio interview where she was talking about the history of abortion, and she was talking about how historians in the past have said that abortion was a widespread practice among women before the, even before the 20th century, and she went on the air to say, no, it's not, because I've done a search of newspapers uh, 
from the you know the 19th and earlier centuries and there is no mention of abortion anywhere and so no historians have skewed the historical record by saying that there was actual abortions happening um and that it was a widespread common phenomenon and as as soon as she said that historians kind of jumped on twitter to point out that no that's not true yeah she's right that they didn't use the word abortion because no one used the word abortion but instead, they would always use all kinds of euphemisms like, you know, feminine hygiene. And uh, there were, you know, various coded language about menses and stopping menses and stuff like that. But all of this stuff was actually ways to induce abortion. And so, you know, Lysol soap was originally marketed through coded language as an ab abortifacient. Is that the word? <laughs> as yeah. something that women would use to uh, to, to help ab abort children or abort their, abort their fetuses. And so uh, she was instantly kind of rebuked by historians pointing out that, well, yeah, okay, sure. They didn't use the word abortion. So yeah, you're right there. But there were there was abortion all over the place in newspapers, just through coded languages and euphemisms and all of that. And so the problem that kind of both of these incidents have kind of made people take note of is that it's one thing to go and look at historical sources, but if you're not it it does take a level of training as a historian to be able to know what the nuances of those sources are. And so the way the the Washington Post article that I'm that I'm kind of um recommending here put it is that Wolf and Roberts fell victim to a myth that is widely shared by the American public, which is that anybody mm -hmm. can do history whether it's diving into genealogy or digging through the vast troves of digital archives now online, the public has an easy way into the world of the past, and why would they imagine that it takes any special training? After all, you've got people like Bill O'Reilly uh, writing best-selling history books. But the, the main gist of this article in the Washington Post is that, but like medicine, law or engineering, history is a profession for which historians spend years learning crucial skills and absorbing bodies of work that help them to interpret the, the past. While we can and must encourage more people to dig into our past and work to better understand it, we must also understand how critical the specialized toolbox of historians is to getting the past right. And I just thought that was a, a, a an interesting comment because history, you know, mainstream public tends to look at history as, you know, it can be a hobby. It can be something that, you know, we all have access to Wikipedia. We all have access to historical newspapers. And so why do we need historical training? And I think that the article makes a good point that those two episodes, the Naomi Wolf and the Cokie Roberts thing really demonstrates that there actually is a training and a a skill set that goes into being a historian more than just simply doing Google searches and finding the um, digital stuff that's available online. And so I think that's just an, an important message for us all to kind of keep in mind about historians here. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mark and Bill, for joining us today. Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy, William Black, and Mark Reyes, I am Rob Denning. Bye-bye.